Real people. Real opinions. Real talk radio. The multi-award winning Niall Boylan Show. Ireland's classic hits. Last night on the show, we had Laura Cathcart-Robbins. We spoke to Laura, who was um, an addiction expert, an author, who had also had a podcast called The Only One in the Room. The concept of her podcast was that each guest is unusual and had some done something extraordinary, for example, and they were the only one in the room or the only person in the room that would have done that, like won an Olympic gold medal or, you know, had 400 million kids or something like that. I think the example Laura gave last night was of a guest she had on who was the only one in the room who had a brother who murdered somebody. Anyway, it strikes me that our next guest tonight certainly suits the premise of the only one in the room because Krista Bilton is an American writer who lives in Los Angeles with her husband and two children. And her first book is a memoir released in 2022 and it's called Normal Family on Truth, Love and How I Met My 35 Siblings. I'll read that again for you just in case you think I made a mistake because you probably thought I made a mistake there or maybe my producer typed it wrong on the script in front of me. Her book is called Normal Family on Truth, Love and How I Met My 35 Siblings. And she joins me on the line. And I think, I hope I pronounced your, your name properly. It's Krista Bilton. Bilton, sorry. Is, am I pronouncing your name properly? It's, yeah, it's perfect. Thanks for that wonderful introduction. Uh, 35 siblings. People would think that I mispronounced it or said something wrong there. How is it even possible to have 35 siblings? But you're going to tell me the incredible story that's in your book and how you ended up in that situation. Yeah, I think we're up to the 40s now, actually, and it's possible that it's in the hundreds. So, oh, um, God only I knows. I have to have a revised, a revised second edition. Yeah. How many, <laughs> how, many, how many have you actually met, by the way? I've met a few dozen. Okay. And do they all look like you? They all look a lot like me. Um, okay. They all they look more like the little sister that I grew up with, Caitlin. Um because she looks like my father. Uh, but yeah, they the similarities, both in, in quirks and personality, as well as physical attributes, are, mm. are truly incredible. And They are, because I can tell you, I met my sister for the first time when I was 52, because we were born in an orphanage. And I remember mm. when I met her, we went out to a restaurant, and we went out to a bar and a nightclub afterwards, and I'm looking at her going, do I recognize things that I do? And she did things that I did, like stir my soup a certain way and slurp the soup a certain way and put her napkin a certain... So she did things similar to me, little idiosyncrasies. So I'm sure you noticed that. But most of my listeners are now thinking to themselves, we don't care now. We want to know how she has that many siblings. Yeah. Um, do you want me to start at the top? Start at the top. Um, Go right back to the start. All right. All right. Well, um, it, it was 19, the early 1980s in Los Angeles, and my mother was this really eccentric, larger-than-life woman. She had been involved in several cults. She had grown up in a very sort of prominent political family. My great-grandfather was the governor of California. Um, there was also a much darker past of alcoholism and all this other stuff. But she, she went out and was part of all these different religious cults. And then uh, was, you know, spent a lot of time searching, I think, because it was also a very hard time to be a gay woman uh, or gay mm. person, for that matter, um, even in L.A., which you think of as so liberal. So when she finally decided in her 30s, after battling and, and getting sober of drug addiction and um, 
she decided she wanted to start a family, but she didn't know a single gay person who had had kids and she didn't know how to go about doing that. And so she, you know, she went on a a comical manhunt for a father figure, um, which I document in the book. And that led her to meeting my, the man who had become my dad uh, when he walked into a fancy Beverly Hills hair salon and was the most handsome man she had ever seen. And she took one look at him and she tells the story that she knew that, that this was the man that she was going to take out to a restaurant and offer a couple thousands of dollars in cash to um, to conceive me with a turkey baster. And so, so that she, is she thought she thought this guy's going to have good looking sperm. So that this ba- guy has good looking sperm. <laughs> <laughs> she did some investigations. She thought his family history was great. They both bonded over New Age religion and uh, and he agreed to do it. And so I think he thought this was a one time one time deal. Two grand's and okay. Made- Two thousand's okay, isn't it? For you know, a drop of sperm, it's okay. Yeah, yeah. He thought it was a great deal, and yeah. she made him swear he would never do this for anyone else. And he and, did swear uh, he'd never do it for any else, anybody else. He did swear because you know it's not often that a a, a, blonde, a vivacious blonde in a hair salon offers you a couple thousands of dollars for such a small thing. He thought it was an absurd request, so he agreed. And then uh, after that. She took him to what was just then a a fertility bank, but later became one of the largest sperm banks in the world. And she took him there to have him tested for STDs and to check that he was fertile. And while he was sitting getting his blood drawn, he saw all these men lined up to donate sperm. And he said to the nurse when my mom wasn't in the room, wait, you mean they make a living doing that? And she said, yes, they, you know. So, um, do they? So for the next, <laughs> Sorry, I'm looking <laughs> yeah. at my producer going, do they make a living doing that? Uh, a very meager living. But oh, okay. as I said, my okay. father was, was into New Age religion. And, he, you know, he lived a, he was sort of a hippie who had yeah. come from a waspy family and, and wanted a simple life surfing in L.A. Mm. And he didn't need much. And um, so he started doing that. And he did that uh, three times a week for almost a decade. And while that was happening, my mom, of course, didn't know. And she uh, thought she was the only one. Yeah. Yes. And and she felt uh, she really felt a lot of shame and guilt around not giving us a father figure. So after I was born, she wound up compelling him into our life as dad financially. So she sort of paid him to play the role. It's like he'd come over for a birthday party and she would hand him a hundred dollars. Um, no. So, so she was paying him maintenance. That seems like it's the wrong way around. Yeah. That's right. That's right. And, and so why, you know, and she, and he never told her that he was doing this at the same time. So then in my mid twenties, after a very colorful life, you know, the book is really about me growing up with my mom. Um, because we had a, a very, very colorful life together. But, um, in my mid twenties due to a, a truly wild set of circumstances that involved me possibly dating my half brother. Uh, all of it came out that that this was something he had done professionally, and that there were potentially hundreds of siblings. I want to go back to when he was she was hiring him out to come to birthday parties and things like that. Did he pay? Did he? Did she ever pay him like to bring you to the zoo or something like that, or bring you to the <laughs> cinema, or, or what? did he pay you to bring, bring you on days out or something like that? Did he ever? Did she do that as well? You know, we, I had a relationship with my dad when I was younger and I'm not, 
She denies that she had this financial relationship with him to compel him into my life, but he was the one that had sort of told me that basically when I was mm. when I was reporting out my book. Um, and so I'm not sure how direct it was every time. He called it a donation, not a payment. Um, but but I think it, you know I, I I did spend time with him, but not usually. He was. As I said, he was quite eccentric, so he would usually come to us. I, I don't mean, know that she you, trusted your mother was quite me out. Yeah, she was quite wealthy, and and I'm, I'm I was reading that you, your mother obviously she was hanging out with you know people who were in the big time, like she meditated with the Beatles and dated you know was dating Ava Gabor, which I think Ava Gabor was Jaja Gabor's sister. Um, That's so, right. Yeah, so she was kind of well in with all the the celebs, so she was clearly making a few quid, or she was living that type of lifestyle, certainly. Anyway, and you know what? When I was reading there, it says in the uh, Sunday Times, it said one of the maddest memoirs you'll ever read, and it certainly sounds like one of the maddest memoirs. So after the point when um, you found out, because you nearly ended up dating your own brother, probably, where did you go from that point then? Yeah. So, well, so to your point, she was very well off at, for some periods of our life, but then we would also be sort of on the verge of homelessness at other points. Cause she, you know, in the same way that sort of her, her drug addiction and alcoholism came and went throughout my life, you know, also the money came and went. So sometimes she would be, you know, one of the key people in a huge pyramid scheme that made us a lot of money and we would be living with multiple cars and a huge mansion and she'd be hanging out with these celebrities, but other times, um, you know, we were, we were on food stamps and didn't know where to go. So it was, and living in, was mo- and living in motels. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, with friends. Yeah, mostly. But, um, mm. but so in terms of the discovery, so in my teenage years, um, my father had some mental health challenges. So he wound up sort of on the, he, he wound up homeless. Um, and so that was a tricky thing to navigate because I, and then, and then, so we sort of stopped having a relationship at a certain point because it was so complicated. And then I started dating this boy and, um, and the way that my mother found out about all the siblings was because my father called her on Valentine's day, uh, to say happy Valentine's. I have, I have a, I have a surprise for you. Go get the New York Times. And she said, what is this, Jeffrey? Why, why go get the New York Times? And he said, just just go to the newsstand and get it. So my mom drove over to the local newsstand. And there on the cover of the Sunday paper of one of the most read newspapers in the world was a picture of my dad with his arm around a, a girl who looked exactly like me. Um, and the headline was something like, um, Hi, you're my, you know, it had to do with her going to meet her father, the first anonymous sperm donor in the world to break his anonymity and welcome his biological donor conceived children to come meet him in sunny California. And so that was the first time my mother realized what he'd done when she read that story. And she had a complete nervous breakdown, but she decided she was never going to tell us this story. Somehow she was going to keep this away from us. So she knew at that um, point you had God knows how many half brothers and sisters. She knew that she kind of that's knew it. right. Yeah. Um, but then it was only through another set of circumstances that she realized the guy I was seeing was probably one of them that she had to. Tell and how did she think and that? that, that why did she? Later. Why did she think that? Did he? Did he kind of look like you or something like that? 
I mean, weird. yes, he did look like, he certainly <laughs> looked like my father. It is incredibly strange to talk about, um, as you can imagine, but, uh, it's such a long story. Um, she, all of the siblings started meeting me and my little sister who, so I had also had a little sister that yeah. was also conceived seeing my father. Um, and you know, unbeknownst to both of us, all of these siblings had started to meet. They started a Facebook group where they were all meeting online. Then when they connected with my father, they started to meet him. But my, my mother was trying to manage all of this and have us not find out. And then she, she basically served my father with all this confidentiality paperwork and she got put in touch with someone else who was involved in the story somehow. And and that person found out that there was a set of twins from a very famous family that were also my father's sperm. And the boy I was seeing had two twin sisters. Oh no. And and my mother, when she heard about it's such a convoluted story, you'll have to read the book for that I, one. I know I I'm kinda of wondering, by the way, is all that kind of stuff painful for you or is it just bizarre? Do you find it difficult? It was incredibly painful at a different stage of my life. Yeah. And now I think I can I can laugh about it and okay. um, find the humanity in it. And, mm. you know, the interesting thing is when you opened, you said, we, we definitely have never known someone with this many siblings. And while that I'm sure is true, one thing that has been really fascinating about publishing the book is how many people I've heard from who have discovered family members through through these, you know, DNA testing websites. I was going to say, no yeah, they, they, they'd be good websites to go to, the, like My Heritage or My whatever it is, those type of websites. And I'm sure, I'm sure you would have and, l- by the lots way, of we results. Don't, we don't have an Irish sibling yet, so I highly recommend that all of your listeners go get a test because <laughs> I would love to have someone to visit in Ireland. Um, I, I, maybe, but, may, just maybe my mother, because from what I believe, I don't know who she, well, I know who she was, but I believe... I, every I, I remember there was a space of about four or five years, and somebody turned around to me and say, "Oh, by the way, you have another brother." And I go, "Oh, really? <laughs> That's really interesting." Um, so maybe, maybe I don't know. Maybe we're loosely connected somewhere along the line. <laughs> but you know, it's a lot of. I also hear from a lot of adoptees because I think that there's a lot of um, thematic crossover about questions around identity and mm-hmm. you know family relationships. Like, what do these relationships mean when you're biologically connected to someone, but you didn't grow up with them. I just think that they're questions that um, are quite universal, even if the story is very specific. Did you, when you were about to date your half-brother or possibly your half-brother, did you feel something? People often wonder, is it nature or nurture? Did you, I mean, do you think that people recognize if somebody's related to them? Well, I certainly didn't recognize that he might be related to me Um, because that would have been, yeah, questionable. (laughs) Um, But certainly that was a painful and confusing realization to have. I would imagine. Yeah. That person also didn't know that they might be conceived with a sperm donor. So it was a very complex thing because I, first of all, had to break up what I had to break up with this person. I had to, you know, like an investigative reporter, figure out, are they in fact my brother? And then also I didn't want to share this crisis I was having with them because it would create their own personal crisis beyond even our relationship. 
Yeah, it wouldn't be um, fair to tell them just in case they didn't know or didn't want to know. But it's incredible. I mean, sperm banks are still not regulated in the United States. So you could still, so my circumstance is not that unusual. There are quite a few pods of donor conceived siblings who were all conceived using the same donor. And the but cryobank. The, mm, there are guys. I, I, think I, I think I did interview a guy going back a while ago. I think he was in New York and he was celebrating the fact that he fathered 100 children or something like that. He, he was also a sperm donor. Um, and I find it quite strange as a conservative, I'm a bit of a conservative myself, that there would be no register because you, you don't want half-brothers and sisters meeting and marrying each other. You know what I mean? You just what, Yes, and, and my story shows that it's very possible that that could happen. It's not just science fiction. No, it's, it's a real thing. Um, yeah. Yeah. So we so we don't um, we don't know how many half brothers and sisters you have, but you're aware of thirty five of them. You've met thirty five. I'm of aware them. of yeah, sort of the. I think we're in the mid forties now, okay. Okay. Um, and we're quite an early. We suspect many more, but we're quite an early batch because he was donating in the early eighties to early nineties, and um, a lot of those. A lot of the kids conceived at that time were through heterosexual couples where the man was infertile and they were advised at that time by the medical community to not tell their children. So most of the half siblings that I have were raised by a man and woman and never told that they had a sperm donor. So it's only by randomly taking a DNA test that they discover that this is, this is a part of them. Whereas nowadays, it's much more common for parents to tell their children, not just if they're in a gay family where it's an obvious question you would ask, where, yeah. where does my... It'd be very obvious, <laughs> all right, yeah. yeah. But now it's really considered sort of the right thing to do to tell your kids. But yeah. back then it wasn't. Yeah. And, and it's the same with adoptees. I think that a lot of adoptees were not always told from That's the beginning. That's right, yeah. Well, I wasn't told until I was 14 or 15 or whatever it was. So I, I, I mean, I understand that. So, yeah. so what's, what's the next step? In in uh, in my life, in yeah, the well, in, in your the... search for more, <laughs> I, I'm assuming. Are you still searching for more? Yeah, I mean, I you know, I I wrote, the, I felt really compelled to write the book because I think that there are a lot of universal themes in it. Um, just coming from a complex family, even beyond sort of having you know un, unsuspecting brothers and sisters, I think you know, coming from a line of where there might be mental health challenges or addiction issues. Like, I think, I think those stories are quite universal and Mm -hmm. I've always loved memoir as a genre. Um, And so it's been really wonderful to put it out into the world and, and reach people in different countries and, and sort of, you know, I have my inbox is full of stories that could each be their own books. And um, so I'm not, I'm not rushing to write another book anytime soon. There's a picture of you actually looking here from the book, which you're sitting on the floor with a number of your siblings, not them all, obviously, because <laughs> you'd, you'd need a conference room for them all, <laughs> but, but a number of them. And I'm wondering when you're dating, I don't know what your personal situation is now, whether you're married or whether you're single or whatever it is. I'm married. I have two kids. Okay. But okay. So, so when you were dating after that guy, even. Were you always cautious then when you were dating somebody, thinking, does he look like me? I wonder has he got a birth mark on his left leg? You know what I mean? I mean, were you always conscious when you were dating somebody? That's so, I mean, I married, it's so, my husband is, we did his DNA test and he's something like 98% Ashkenazi Jew. And I know that I have 
absolutely zero Ashkenazi in in my blood. So I'm happy to report that I know that I married a non-sibling. But um, (laughs) I mean, it's definitely something on my mind. You know, sometimes I'll see actors on TV who are younger than me and I I will think, wow, they look a lot like the siblings. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Or people walking, you know, siblings of mine will will text. We have this group WhatsApp or group, you know, we have all these different group chats and they'll text like a picture of someone in a coffee shop and they'll be like, I'm sure it's one of us. Um, so it's definitely something that's on our mind. And do your kids know that they have like, you know, a million, auntie, a million aunties and uncles? <laughs> are, they, are your kids aware of that? You know, when they come over, we joke and give them sort of uncle names. I think of them a little bit like distant cousins more than a sibling relationship. Um, Okay. But we're very open with them. Yes, they're still sort of too small to really register what that means. But I will will share it with them when they're older, for sure. That'll be mind-blowing for them if they're doing their family tree when they get older. (laughs) Because if they do the My Heritage thing then, or, you know, they do their DNA with whoever... You know, they're going to have, like, normally most people kind of get a page of results. You kind of get about 100 pages of results. It's so true. It's yeah. so true. Uh, and the interesting thing is usually we find siblings at certain times of year. Yeah. Which are basically when the when the websites are advertising deals. Yeah. So around the holidays and Valentine's Day is usually when we get a new batch. A new batch. I do. I I, I signed up with one of them a few going back a few years ago too. And is it, there are certain times of the year you get the emails in the inbox. We've just found somebody else. And I go, okay. <laughs> true. And it's interesting. They must know how many family crises they're they're beginning because they don't tell you that you've just matched with a sibling. Mm. They send you an email that says you may have someone who's between a sibling and a first cousin. Yep. Um, I think it's sort of their soft landing, but we, we've developed all kinds of protocols for which sibling reaches out and, and how they explain the situation because um, it's quite a big thing to take in. Well, look, the Sunday Times wasn't lying when it said it was one of the maddest memoirs you'll ever read. It said it's a beautiful, warm, funny book and as uh, a testament to human resilience, forgiveness and humor. It is also a love letter to an extraordinary mother uh, because you talk very fondly about your own mother as well. And um, and, you know, it's, it sounds like a wonderful read that I will be having a read of myself when I get a chance. Um, and it's available, I'm assuming, in all the usual places, in yep. um, Amazon and everywhere else. And for people who don't, didn't, don't remember what I called it again, because I know it's an unusual name, it's called Normal Family on Truth, Love and How I Met My 35 Siblings. And the author, who I'm going to pronounce her name wrong again, <laughs> is uh, Christia Billiton. Is, is it Billiton or Bilchin? It's Krista Bilton. There you go. Krista Bilton. Krista, I do apologise for pronouncing your name wrong. I was highly entertained. I didn't even hear it. It was perfect. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I really And I was highly entertained, but also highly sad that you would have went through a painful time at that time. And I hope we weren't too flippant in the interview towards it, but I thought it was a really interesting but bizarre story. Listen, thank you very much indeed for joining us, and I appreciate it. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. There you go. Wonderful book. If you want to get it, it's called Family. Uh, oh, sorry. It's called Normal Family on Truth, Love and How I Met My 35 Siblings. Real people. Real opinions. Real talk radio. The multi-award winning Niall Boylan Show. Oh.